0: This week with special guests, Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold and Dr. Lisa Ingerfield, we move beyond thinking solely in terms of DEI to thinking of equitable strategies that will mobilize organizational change.
1: As a returning guest to the Success in Black and White podcast, Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold brings us her wisdom once again. Serving as the Assistant Provost for Diversity and Inclusion at Towson University, Dr. Shauna Pangold is passionate about speaking truth while serving those around her, about mentoring others, and about sport and triathlon. Dr. Shauna Gold and her counterpart, Dr. Lisa Ingerfield, host the Unfazed podcast, a podcast designed to help you grapple with the reality of racism, sexism, ableism, and many other hard-to-discuss issues affecting triathlon, endurance sport, and our lives. Dr. Lisa Ingerfield received her PhD in Intercultural Communication from the University of Denver. Her research focuses on how inclusion and exclusion manifest in communication. Prior to becoming a research, evaluation, and DEI consultant, she worked for 15 years in the public sector in education and state government. Lisa is a systems thinker and is able to advise organizations looking to make meaningful change and ensure its infrastructure center's inclusion. She is originally from London, UK, and currently resides in Colorado. She races triathlon, owns Try to Defy Coaching and Consulting, and is a certified RRCA and USAT coach. She also co-founded the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit with Dr. Sarah Gross. I'm April Lovett.
0: And I'm Daryl Lovett.
1: And this is Success in Black and White, the
0: podcast, where
1: our mission is to bridge the gap between between racial racial boundaries. boundaries. We can't wait to share our stories, tips, and experiences,
0: as well as hear from extraordinary guests.
1: So stay tuned
0: as we jump into this episode.
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Success in Black and White.
0: The podcast. We are back one more again. We are back one more again.
1: We are back and we're coming to you live.
0: From the house.
1: Always, always now from the house.
0: We're not alone.
1: We're not alone. We are
0: not alone. I
1: know, I'm really excited about our guests tonight. Um, Our guests tonight are actually the hosts of the podcast Unfazed, Um, by the company Outspoken, and we are so excited to have them because this podcast is so outstanding. I recommend it almost on a weekly basis, and I would be telling the very God's honest truth when I tell you that I actually put it in a link at a Zoom meeting just this morning and was like, you need to listen to this podcast because we're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion today. Uh, So I'm excited. These two ladies I have followed since they started the podcast. Um, I do remember even when Shauna reached out to me and was like, get excited. We're starting the podcast. And I was like, I'm so excited. You have no idea. (laughs) So that was before they ever even started it. Um, But we've been listening ever since. And it's just an amazing, amazing show. Um, they bring very real talk, which you, our audience, know that we value very much because we bring a lot of real talk too. Um, and they are very committed to justice, diversity, equity, inclusion, um, all of the things as they speak. And so I'm excited to bring them to you on our show and share that knowledge. Um, and hopefully you'll go listen to their show after this interview.
0: Not an understatement when she says she's excited. I'm very excited. Like, I can, I can, y'all can't feel her right now. Like I can feel <laughs> her sitting next to me, and she is so jittery right now. I'm so, so I had to say it just in case anyone that's viewing like see see me like reach over. It's not to like hush her or anything. It's to try to get her to calm down. She is literally so just like excited. bouncing, yeah. and I'm just like like bring it down. But just- that's
1: why we drink wine, <laughs> so it's fine.
0: <laughs> no. But but definitely I echo what she says. Um, she makes sure she keeps me in check with listening. She's like, have you went and listened? And, and every time I, I listen, like my emotions, like y'all take me on an emotional journey sometimes. I'm listening and then sometimes I get fired up and then sometimes I get motivated. And then sometimes it's just refreshing to, to hear different perspectives and to learn um, things in a different way. So um, that's what I've taken away. And, and I really appreciate what you all do. Um, and it definitely helps uh, keep us inspired. I know on an episode um, you all were talking about the three to five year time frame and the burnout. Um, and, and I can tell you that, especially during this time, like we're going hard and, and we're hitting it, you know, every day. Um, so I, I think that it's refreshing. Uh, to get the encouragement, but to also um, stay rejuvenated in my mindset as well. So I'm going to let April jump off with these questions. She got the notepad, oh she goodness. got the computer screen over Y'all. there. I'm, <laughs> I'm nervous.
1: I can't, even, I can't even tell you like where I want to start because I have 5 million things I want to talk about. But first, for our audience, I really want them to hear um, a little bit from each of you, your backgrounds. What your professions are, how you're kind of working in different spheres of influence, what brought you there and why you care about what you do.
2: Well, I'm not new to the podcast at all, so I'm just going to gloss over uh, what was said previously in a previous episode, but um, again, my name is Shauna Payne-Gold. I'm the Assistant Provost for Diversity and Inclusion at Towson University, which is right outside of Baltimore, literally like two blocks outside of Baltimore City, Um, and so that's my day job and my bread and butter, of course, Uh, but also I've been doing consulting for gosh, going into my seventh year, sixth or seventh year of consulting work with organizations, both inside and outside of higher ed that are seeking to make some strides when it comes to diversity, equity and inclusion work. So it's truly my passion. It's what I love to do. It's what I've studied. Um, My career is kind of uh, around the bend, if you will, when it comes to everything. Um, My undergraduate degree is in business. My master's degree is in campus ministry, actually. And then um, my terminal degree is in higher ed administration. And I just really decided to take a slant towards diversity she inclusion work and in some random way triathlon brought me and lisa together and we're like two halves of the same brain oftentimes when we talk about things she fills in my gaps and i try to fill in hers um we we haven't started completing each other's sentences yet but we're pretty close we're we're pretty close so um that's that's kind of how we got to this space and so she's my incredible co-host incredible co-host yes
3: Oh, thank you. <laughs> I was listening to you introduce yourself and your degrees, and I was like, oh, good. It's not just me
2: that has this random collection of educational degrees. Oh, it doesn't fit together at all. Not at all. It it seems so <laughs> random. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Um, my undergraduate and initial master's level was in political science, <laughs> and then I transitioned to higher ed, um, and then to intercultural communication. So... <laughs> There's a collection for you. Um, They actually they do. If you think about it, they do go together. But that's for another podcast, probably. But um, I hail from the United Kingdom. I came here for my higher for my higher ed degree um, to the great state of Colorado, which is where I've been since 2003. Currently living south of Denver, Um, and I kind of entered this diversity, equity, and inclusion representation justice work through higher education. So my primary um, line of work has been in um, violence prevention. So specifically violence against women, um, sexual violence, domestic violence, those sorts of things. So I established a number of uh, programs and offices on college campuses, Um, intimately familiar with Title IX and all of that stuff that happens there. and then I um, kind of transitioned out of uh, working one-on-one with survivors into a more macro level policy work. Um, so, you know, as I think about that trajectory and the what I try to drum home to social workers, because I also teach um, in the social work school at the University of Denver, is that working with people um, and policy are not separate right because the policies that get created at the local state and federal level absolutely affect the individuals and the families and the children um and the patients that you're working with as a social worker and i think that that's also true in the context of sport which is obviously how shauna and i know each other um in that you know, coaches and race directors and sports organizations and businesses, you know, they create policies and those policies have an impact, right? They have an impact on the people who participate in the sport. And so, you know, I'm always making these connections and I joke that my brain is a little bit like a popcorn machine. So I find myself going off on tangents. Actually, Shona and I do that a lot, <laughs> We find rabbit holes quite often
2: <laughs> absolutely absolutely and they end up making the best podcast too that's the thing is that we just find these trails it's like oh i didn't really make that connection so mm. yeah we do that often
3: yeah so i think really for me it's i i entered this space like i said through the violence against women movement but you know my identity as a woman is very important to me and it always has been for most of my life and my understanding around race And ability and um, socioeconomic status kind of came after my understanding around gender. So experiencing marginalization as a woman, um, I think, created that opening for me to really understand, particularly around race, um, white privilege and what that means to live in a white supremacist society. And what does it mean for me to help deconstruct that and break that down? So it's a it's a personal commitment, I think.
1: I so I, I want to switch gears, and I'm just unsure of where to even switch it to, because there are some things that you mentioned in your latest podcast episode that dropped this week that really resonated with me, um, and I also want to get your broad overviews of some of the events that have happened in the past year, um, so let's start there. Let's start with some of this with justice, equity, diversity, inclusion has really come to the forefront in the past year. And at the same time, it's the concepts have really highlighted a lot of um, not only inequities in what we see in context of pay and treatment and behaviors, but also this, like the attitude. I feel like there's a very dividing line of people who were like, this is a thing and we need to address it. And they're stepping up. And then there's a line of people who were like, "Um, how do I say this the nice way? let's talk about Trump's executive order. Um, And there are people like that who are like, this is ridiculous and we don't believe in this and we don't need to be talking about this. And it feels like in the past year, we had a Trump executive order telling federal governments and their entities and their contractors and their subsidiaries that they cannot be talking about training people on equity diversity inclusion and then all of a sudden the administration changed for the better and biden came in and he basically reversed the order and then some and so i'm just curious because you are both in this space and you both work very closely with these principles what what have you seen with this trend what is, what does this mean everything we've seen in the past year
2: Oh, that's a a great question. Yes, it's been an extremely volatile year. We know that. Um, One of the things I think is really interesting is that um, I've I've been through several different uh, coaching programs and training, professional development, and so forth, even in the last year where I'm always interested in making sure that my skills are sharp, sharper, that type of thing. And one of the coaches that I was working with this past year mentioned how First of all, uh, that privilege is a trigger word for her. Um, And so she chooses not to use that word at all. So we can talk about that later about just that concept. Um, That was the first thing she mentioned. And the second thing that she mentioned is that um, right now, all the Jedi stuff is trendy for those who aren't authentic about the work. And so you see a lot of white guilt money that's going out there where, oh, we should be doing something. We should have been doing something for years. Or even if we really don't care about it, we're behind, uh, behind the curve when it comes to doing some of this work. So let's throw a lot of money at it and see what happens. And so you know that you can kind of read through. And so my coach was saying that let's make sure that we don't get stuck in Jedi language, justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion language, but continue to focus on org development language, um, as well as professional development language, because org development and and professional development language has not gone anywhere in tons of organizations across different industries, whereas justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion language, eh, it can be trendy for an organization that's truly not interested and wants to be performative. They want to perform. They want to look as if they're keeping up with the pace when they're really not. And so, given that, I think, you know, we, re- we need to really pay attention to that. Um, I feel fortunate that I work on a campus that is probably just as liberal as I am, if you will, in many ways, um, especially um, when it comes to this type of work. And so I remember some campuses kind of being grateful, like it was almost like a sigh that, oh, the executive order is here, so at least we don't have to really tackle this any more than we already are. There were campuses similar to mine and I've talked to other colleagues across the country where they were just waiting things out, if you will. So the executive order came down. I was at the point where we were about to launch our first diversity strategic plan in the history of the university in 155 years. And we used all the language that the executive order had told the country not to use. And we're sitting there like, you mean to tell me we put 18 months into this diversity strategic plan and now we can't launch it? And so we had to kind of hold tight a little bit, hoping and praying that the election went in a certain direction so that we could even launch some of these major initiatives that had been underway for for years, literally. And so given that, you know, I remember some of my higher-ups literally laughing, like saying, I, I'm laughing that we're even having this meeting about this ridiculous executive order. So I think we should bide our time, wait, see what the election does for the country, and the millisecond that we see the results of the election, then we make a decision as to how we're gonna move forward, but this is still a priority to this campus. And so I think a lot of people kind of, you know, they they sheltered in place until the election results came out, and then after that, they moved forward. So that that's kind of some of the things that I've seen happen over the year, but I do think that there's some very volatile things that the country has been still enough to notice and address. And I think that the dual pandemic of both COVID-19 and all of the um, racial injustice especially that has been happening forever, but we were still enough to notice this year, now people are responding. So that's kind of my thoughts on that. But Lisa, what do you think?
3: Yeah, I like how you ended that with the people being still enough to notice. So the pandemic created the window perhaps for in particular, more white people to wake up and see these kind of deep-seated problems. Um, you know, Shauna and I have talked about how how much this will stick in terms of the excitement and energy around doing something different and being better. And I, I think the jury's out on that one. But for me, what I see when I look back is that there's a, there's been a little bit of a sea change linguistically. So it speaks in some part to what Shauna said about the trendiness of the Jedi language, but I hear people talking more about systems now, right? Versus the bad apple, the individual person. I mean, we still have that, right? And I think that um, this past week with the two mass shootings that happened, um, we've fallen into that a little bit, but this, um, there seems to be a deeper understanding about, Um, how, you know, the administration at the federal level, so the Trump administration, you know, and his kind of mercurial nature, uh, how that can have um, devastating effects in terms of how it trickles down, right, all the way through to the local level um, and that it's important to pay attention to that. You know, so it connects for me to voting as well and how... um, fervently people were energized and interested in getting out to vote in this past election now and let's not get me on my soapbox about um suppression of the vote and <laughs> voting rights <laughs> another podcast um, but you know so i so i think that part of that is because there's this recognition that the system matters so you know um that we have to change the people who are running the system because without that movement you know the titanic isn't going to go anywhere um and then this what's interesting to me too is there's been a lot of talk and actually president biden says this a lot that this is not america when he's talking about racism and he's talked about it recently with um the murder of the individuals in atlanta particularly the six asian american women you know this is not america this is not who we are and it's funny because i'm not america well i am i'm a u.s citizen now but like i have this kind of Um, interesting perspective because I spent 26 years of my life in the United Kingdom right so it's weird so it's a different way of thinking about what it means to be American Um, and so actually my undergraduate degree was political science but it was American political science so like I also have this background external background thinking about it and for me it seems so disingenuous to say that it's very um, uh, idealistic it's very idealistic and it's a very white thing to say right, that this is not who we are. Because when we think about Asian American um, discrimination, given that that's a recent thing, um, the talking about it is a recent thing, the discrimination is not, right? And that that goes all the way back, all the way back, hundreds of years, right? Um, And we don't ever talk about that, but now I'm hearing it, right? And I think that that's different. So I think this past year and everything that's happened has shifted the conversation in a way that in 2019, we might not have heard that same critique. Um, Again, whether that's lasting, I don't know, but that's interesting to me.
1: Lisa, you just said something that really resonated with me is that the, that is a, it's very much a privileged white ideal to think to to be able to say like this is not america and for anybody who has studied the actual history of america this is exactly america this is exactly who we always have been and there's always this like (laughs) we we want to be better and you know there's a really interesting podcast um, Seen on radio. I don't know if either of you have listened to Seen on Radio from Duke University. Um, But one of, you know, the hosts, John Bewan, says, you know, in Trump's America, it's really interesting to see this come to light because Trump is everything we say we're not, but we actually are. And we, we need to strive to be better and to do better. And so I like that you both were talking about the systems change because I think that's so important. And Shauna, you know, you said something that I was like, this is, I, I feel like I was listening to your podcast again because in your podcast, you were talking about how the this checklist of DEI is very in vogue right now. And you would rather an institution or an organization just be transparent and say, this is not what we want like we don't want to diversify we don't want to be inclusive because then there's no mystery it's not performative it's not we get there and we trick somebody to come in which then led to saying <laughs> regurgitate your podcast too but then you know lisa said something else that i thought was really powerful she said the one person who comes in that they hire as the dei hire That diverse person has to be the one to lead the way, and they're the only one to lead the way for that institution to say, oh, well, this, we should hire more diverse people or, oh, no, look, that person didn't work out because that one person couldn't survive in our culture, right? And I thought that was very powerful because it connects back to what what you were both talking about just then.
2: Right, right. Well, and, you know, I think what's what's interesting about I remember, Lisa, that podcast where we talked specifically about um, even President Biden saying that he wanted to be everyone's president. And Lisa and I were like ready to jump through the Zoom call, you know, at that point, because we're thinking, no, I don't want you to be the president of racist. I don't want you to be the president of sexist. I want you to be the president of those of us who want actual inclusion rather than performing actual inclusion and so no i'm not interested in you being everybody's president because if that's the case that means things like charlottesville is okay atlanta is okay george floyd is okay brianna taylor is okay all the way back to emmett till prior to emmett till all of that is okay and it's not and has never been now if we want to talk about systems then I'm okay with acknowledging historical fact, but who we are, you know I, I almost wanted to remind Biden to say, hold up, man, the first 16 US presidents all were slaveholders, that's who we are. Now, I'm not saying we are proud of that, I'm just simply saying that's who we are factually. Now, what are you gonna do with that information and how are you gonna be different moving forward? Even as we, because I, I worked at UVA for several years, yeah, I got it. I'm, I'm a Virginian. I'm originally from Southern Virginia. I know all that, that Thomas Jefferson has been trumped up to be and all that Thomas Jefferson actually was based on revisionist history of, no, we need to tell the whole story of, no, Thomas Jefferson wasn't just planting 75 different fruits and vegetables. The people who he enslaved planted 75 vegetables. So uh, even things as simple as that, again, circling back to what Lisa was mentioning about system, is that now people are realizing, oh, of course you couldn't thrive in that system. It makes sense. You know, we see people, especially those of us, all of us are in higher ed, we see all of those resignations coming through and we're wondering, you know, why are people surprised? You know, you're the only person um, who's a, Uh, African-American faculty member in a department that has never seen a Black person be successful in 150 years, why are we surprised when they leave, when they don't have enough supports? You know, that happens on repeat. And so when do we get to a point where it's not a isolated incident, but it's a system? And so, Lisa, that kind of reminds me of your work around just victim blaming in general. It's like, oh, this one person who was already tokenized to begin with, is now being blamed for not thriving in a system that was never set up for them. Who does that? We do it all the time. And so I think now we're becoming more thoughtful about how systems literally were not built for certain people and what we want to do about it. Um, Whereas up until I would suggest the last year or so, it's all been isolated incidences, all of it. And it's easier to think that way too. It's easier to think in onesies rather than in entire systems, so. That, that's important for us to kind of hold all at the same time.
0: So I have a can of worms that, that, <laughs> that I've been holding on to, and I'm, I'm ready to open it up now. <clears throat> Since we're talking about systems um, and, and in, in this work and in positions that I've been in, um, I know that things take time. What are your thoughts on the timeframes that are associated with these changes? (laughs) Uh, And when we're talking about systematic changes, I'm just curious as to what your thoughts are about the time that it takes for these changes to be implemented, the time that it takes for these changes to actually um, produce fruit or to be recognized.
2: Well, in our um, in our strategic plan, we um, wrote a, an entire section specifically on that as far as the timeline, you know, of course, mapping out what we would like for the timeline to be. But we also included a, a paragraph that basically was called um, work with urgency, but wait with patience, meaning that yeah you have to work quickly and there's lots of micro steps that need to happen for these big changes but you know i remember um one of my you know relatively entry-level folks in DEI work after we had launched our strategic plan two months later this person was asking about the metrics of the plan that we had just rolled out and i'm thinking to myself half the campus have hasn't even read the damn thing yet and and you're wanting the the data points come on let, let. and so we're not saying the work isn't being done, but there's a socialization process, um, you know. And being realistic, it, it kind of reminds, <laughs> it kind of reminds me of of uh, of gaining weight and losing weight. It's like, okay, yeah, we're in a bad place, but it's going to take us some time to drop this weight. And I feel similarly when it comes to DEI planning and strategic plans. Is that yes, everybody needs to work like their pants are on fire. However, knowing that it may be a decade before I see certain data points move over time. Or like uh, we've talked about before about diversifying faculty, for example, in higher education. Well, if the tenure track is around about six years to begin with, look, I'm sitting around here waiting on people to retire so that I can even do a diverse hiring practice. Because, you know, you can't move that whole system because that system is inherently a long-winded system. So it's not like, oh, I get to hire a new faculty member every semester. That may not be the case. I, I have one department right now that because everyone has performed well, we haven't had to do a hire in that department in seven years. And so that limits my ability to think about diversity or having a diverse pool, et cetera. And so I just think it's really important for us to understand how we're not going to uproot major challenges in a couple of months that have been here for centuries. That's not realistic. And that doesn't mean that nothing is happening. I think sometimes people look at the surface, Lisa, it's kind of like us swimming. We look at the surface and think everything is Lake Placid smooth when there's a lot of uncurrent undercurrent going on where people are doing a lot of work that you just don't see and it'll eventually start to show itself but I do think there's a balance between working like crazy but also um, uh, having patience still asking those hard questions still holding people accountable but there has to be a little bit of a balance with that patience piece so what what are you Mm -hmm. thinking Lisa
3: yeah I'm pretty impatient (laughs) so uh, you know sometimes I do get to that place where I'm like you know, like get on the boat or get off the boat. There's a, there's a, probably a, a more explicit way. I could, I could say that, but um, you know, like it just, I, I don't know. Sometimes I just feel like we have, you know, if we're going to do this, let's do this. Right. And I think about the tenure track thing that you mentioned, Shauna, and I'm like, that's a system that was set up to protect white male payout power. Right.
2: Absolutely. So you change Absolutely. It, change
3: it. Right. Because I think that the, the universities can change the tenure system if they want to right? So I guess they it don't want here. to though. They don't want they
2: don't to. Want to. Yeah.
3: Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so there's all the, there's all the stuff that has to happen in the background and it kind of makes me think of um, policy work, right? Like um, this kind of incremental change versus burn it all down. And, you know, there are, there are, I have, can give you an example. It's kind of diversity related, but um, last year in the state of Colorado, um, there was a bill to, um, remove the statute of limitations for civil statute of limitations for childhood sexual abuse. So this would enable adults who are experienced abuse as children to hold accountable those abuses or those systems that enabled the abuse to happen, right? And um, there's some weird constitutional thing in Colorado that wouldn't allow for there to be like this retroactive window where um, survivors um, like previously could invoke the law it would only work from the point that um the law became law if that makes sense it's a bit confusing i don't exactly understand it but the bill sponsor it was going it was going through and this has been a fight in colorado for like 25 years and it was going through and it looked like it was going to pass before like covid shut everything down and the bill sponsor pulled her support because it didn't have that retroactive window and so the bill went, so then there was no bill, right? So that statute of limitations didn't go away. I mean, we're fighting that fight again now. But so in her mind, she's thinking it doesn't do enough. So we're not going to do it at all, right? Whereas I'm thinking, and other people are, this is a really important step for survivors and it is an incremental step. And we'll come back to the issue about the retroactive claims, right? And I, that's kind of, I think, how... Um, there's, I feel like people fall into two camps, the burn it all down. And if it's not everything, it's not good enough versus how can we negotiate in the background? How can we be strategic? How can we build relationships and like, you know, push the envelope and ask the hard questions, but you're constantly nudging. So there's constantly movement, but it's small and somewhat unnoticeable. And you only see it if you go away and come back after a period of time, right? Um, I think that that's a really interesting um, Dilemma, and um, the other thing that it made me think of, your what Shauna was saying in your question was related to um, Audra Lord said that the master's tools can never dismantle the master's house, and that's really interesting when we think about time and how long this takes, right? Because if we're churning away within a system using the tools that the master gave us that were designed primarily to maintain the house like, are we actually, are we just spinning our wheels? Right. So should we get outside of it and like bang it down from the outside, essentially. And I think, you know, I don't know where I land on that. I think it's, you know, there's pluses and minuses, but that is directly related to how long it takes to enact change. I think is that the tools and the strategies that
0: we use. Lisa, I'm more like you, like the impatience, (laughs) like I'm a result driven person and, and I'm going to hopefully speak all of our language. Um, You two are athletes. If you have equipment that is not helping you perform at your maximum level, you're not going to keep that equipment and be like, oh, well, I'm going to just keep trying it out. Maybe it'll adjust, you know, maybe it'll work for me. Like you're going to go look at other options. And if you find something that works better for you, you're going to go with that equipment and change it out. Um, if if you're talking about performing so that's that's my personal thought process and approach I'm like we have things that are not working they're not helping us um, perform at a high level so why are we just holding on to them and we're like trying to like figure them out and, and make them work for us if we have results showing that they are not helping us perform
2: yeah, well, and you know, I'm. Um, this whole conversation reminds me of Mary Beth Gassman who wrote this incredible article on why there weren't more underrepresented faculty being hired in higher ed. And basically her point was that the title of the article referred to why isn't there more underrepresented faculty? Because we don't want them. And then it goes into a laundry list of the reasons why. So, you know, this is full circle for me because again, it's one thing to really want that equipment to work to get you to your goal. It's another thing of, well, shoot, I didn't want to work out anyway. So if this bike don't work, then whatever. The, you know, it, you've know, you're you already decided that, hey, I'm good if this doesn't work because I'm in a, a place of privilege where, hey, I'm doing this for somebody else anyway. I'm not even doing this for me. So if it doesn't work, I'm not going to put too much energy into this. We're not keeping the same energy at all because we didn't want it to happen. And so- I'm with Dr. Gassman on this when it comes to if you really want it or not. It's very telling to me if I send something through as far as, you know, through a faculty senate or some committee, you know, the energy around whatever sent through when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion work, I can tell who's enthusiastic and sincere about something working and who's like, eh, if it fits, it fits. If doesn't, it doesn't. I'm not harmed one way or the other because I don't have any proximity to the group that's being oppressed. I have no proximity to them. So therefore, if it works out, it does. If it doesn't, unbothered. I'm going to keep it moving. And so to me, that level of enthusiasm, that's very telling as to whether it's going to work or not. And I love Lisa's example of the policy because we had something similar um, where we were on our faculty searches, we realized that we were taxing uh, underrepresented faculty members by being that one token on every search committee that's keeping in mind equity and inclusion concerns and frankly just because you woke up black brown whatever a woman that doesn't mean that you have the skill sets to look for those things either now you can give voice but there's still some skill sets involved and so it took us once again, another 18 months um, to create this program called the inclusion advocate program where we take tenured faculty members, train them and then they are matched to sit on committees and those search committees are probably not in their department. They may not even be in their own college. So you can have Daryl, the, uh, the professor of geography sitting in, in a search committee for math right, as a tenured faculty member and helping to identify where we need to continue to de-bias the search process. Well, that entire process had to be voted upon by the Academic Senate. We had to also, think very critically about what we were gonna include and what we weren't because for most searches, the faculty members vote on the finalists. There were some, uh, I knew there would be some resistance to that vote. And so we knew that this whole project that we had worked on for 18 months might get thrown out just on the point of disagreement around voting or not. So what we had to do was play chess, not checkers and give it up to the departments to say, hey, if you have an inclusion advocate, your department by department determines whether the IA is going to get a vote or not. And that's what got the whole baby through rather than the whole thing being thrown away over that one point of voting. So this is when it gets more complex where, yes, I would love to run a Mack truck through the whole process, but probably end up with no inclusion advocate and definitely no vote and so we have you know one department that does allow their ia to vote another that doesn't but i'm as much as i want everybody to be able to vote i also realize that we might have ended up with nothing and so what happens when you have to make some of those hard decisions of not exactly what we want but close and better than nothing so let's run with it those decisions are made constantly constantly Mm.
3: it's a strategic choice Right?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I
3: have to balance my impatience with the with the knowledge that strategy w- can win in the end. I think there's sometimes you want to drive a truck through it. There's moments for that. <laughs> um, but yeah, that strategy. I think when we're talking about diversity and inclusion work in any organisation, whether that's higher education, sport, business, I think that there has to be. You have to be intentional and thoughtful and know who your allies are and your champions and really think about. Um, who to approach and how to do it. It's politics, right? It's like politics.
0: I really like that. And I'm going to let April ask the next question. I can feel her kind of like <laughs> like rocking a little bit. So I'm going to let her get to the next question. But I, I really appreciate what you both just said um, because I know for me, um, and, and I still battle with it periodically. Like I always feel like I'm working, you know, with people and we're always trying to catch up. And, and I lose sight of the strategic process um, and that it takes time with the political side of it. And, and because I'm, I'm so anxious and, and I want to see the change and I want us to be progressive um, at, at a faster pace than probably we normally are. Like I always feel like, like I'm trying to catch up or I'm in a mode of catch up. And sometimes it's discouraging and I battle with it often. Um, but I really appreciate what you both just shared about just remembering that you have to um, make strategic plays. You know, it's it's chess, and not the checker. Uh, and and hopefully some of our listeners also took that away because that actually just helped me. Because I was like, oh man, I always feel like I'm trying to catch up. I always feel like I'm going 100 miles per hour. But um, I think for me personally, I'm just going to probably take a step back and look at the uh, strategy and and try to think of it from that way and work on my patience a little bit. <laughs>
1: Well, I I think it's important what, you know, when we were talking a little bit earlier about what type of tools are we working with, you know, that's one of the things that we get caught up on is like, okay, we need to race to get all these things done, which part of me is like, yes, you know, good. Let's move in the right direction. And part of me is like, okay, but if we're, if we are building or trying to build Systems of diversity, equity, inclusion upon a rock that was built on white supremacy were probably, some of those are not going to be sticking points. It's because we need to go back and dismantle what was built on white supremacy before we can move forward with certain things, not everything, but with certain things. And so I get a little, I like the strategy play. I like the chess versus checkers. Because it makes sense in terms of what can we move forward on now? What makes sense is like the low hanging fruit versus what do we actually need to plan for? What do we need to make sure we dismantle first before trying to build upon? Because it was built on a faulty foundation in the first place. Um, And so I like, this is a good conversation. Um, I do want to (laughs) ask, this is, well, I love, okay, I, I love your podcast. I love, love your podcast. This was something, I think, back from November or December that I learned from both of you um, that I have brought into multiple conversations in various offices talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and that is the conversation about representation versus diversity, and that was a really important conversation for me to listen to when you both talked about it, um, and and just something that really has stuck with me. So I would love to maybe have a little bit of that conversation um, tonight in the next few minutes because I think that our audience should hear this um, about you know what is the importance of representation, what is the importance of diversity, how do they coexist, um, and and how do we utilize them both as as. Uh, I, I don't
2: even know what the word would be. How do we just utilize both of them? That's a good question. Yeah, I'm thinking, Lisa, I'm thinking, I, I've, I'm thinking about where, where I would place it because I, I find myself kind of using the diversity language as a label that people are familiar with, even though I mean and function within representation right so people outside of our industry that don't do what we do every single day they know what you mean when you put out their diversity okay we're talking about different people how to get them to function well together how do we get everyone to play nicely in the sandbox yeah okay fine we can at least start there and then move forward but representation to me gets more and more interesting because it goes back to that concept and Lisa you might have to help me out on the scholar on this but um, it goes back to scholarship around centering and who's in the center and it reminds me a lot about you know as far as like being on a stage with a spotlight on you and usually what has happened or at least in American culture what has happened is that white people in general have been in the spotlight on this stage however if you broaden that light out to see everyone there's tons of people on that stage and we would have never known that had had the light not centered just one person and so i feel that that's where you know we feel the white fragility creeping up to say wait a minute you don't care about white people anymore no we've been caring about y'all since day one okay Mm -hmm. enough already we need to care about everybody and so this is how we center other people's lived experiences and what that means as far as how we make decisions because and And I think about it all the time. Lisa, we've had this conversation about universal design. When you design something, having in mind that certain people are going to exist and function in that place, then everything from the start is designed to accommodate and make those individuals comfortable. But what if there's some other people that show up that you didn't design for? And therefore now they're walking around uncomfortable. Like It reminds me of, I don't know if y'all remember, there was like some kind of cold medicine commercial or something that was on TV for a while. And it was this mini little house, this teeny little house um, that was built in this commercial. And there was this seven foot tall man that was trying to function within this house. And I'm thinking to myself, of course, you can't function in the house. The house was not built for you. The house was built for a person that's three feet tall. So, of course, it doesn't fit you. And that's kind of how I feel about the whole diversity and uh, and representation piece is that because only one group or a couple of groups was represented when we built this house called the United States of America, that's why it doesn't fit for too many other people unless those people cramp themselves up to fit into this small ass house. Nah, that doesn't work. And so we have to think through, going back to Lisa's point, do we wanna burn this whole thing down and start over? Are we gonna dismantle the house because maybe you know the, the footers or something is worth holding on to, but we still need to pour a new foundation and rebuild? What are we gonna do? And sometimes I feel like if we do kind of run a Mack truck through the country, without some real deep examination as to how we got here, then all we're going to do is just do it again in a different way. So we centered white folks this time. Okay. Well, what if we tear it all down and then we center men of all colors, or then we tear it down again and we center people with blue eyes and then we tear it down again and center people that are under five feet. Like we could center all kinds of people to the detriment of others. It just happened to be on race here. So how do we rebuild that and think that through? So that's kind of how I see You know, that difference between diversity and representation is that diversity is a label to help invite people in. But once you get them in, it's almost in my mind, kind of a bait and switch type situation where, okay, now that you're here, let's talk about representation, because that's really what we want to get at. And that's like the level two, three of what I really want to get at when I'm doing this type of work. so, yeah, I'm still kind of mulling that through and how do, like, I, I'll know that we'll, we've arrived when people's titles start changing from, you know, vice president da, 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 to, you know, something with representation included in it. But we, I, I know we're not there yet at this point, though. Lisa, what are you thinking?
3: Mm, I mean, I thought it, it was pretty a profound shift for me, too, because we heard about it on that podcast, right? Wasn't it Abby Wombach? Um, and her wife.
2: The- yeah, that's right. Um, she was talking with um, on Lovey Ajayi's podcast. See, see how all these podcasts are just kind of building up. Um, Lovey was uh, having an interview with Abby Wambach and talking with her and, and she had a really strong statement around not using diversity because it's centered white people because mm. it begs the question diverse from what? usually diverse from white people or white males. So that's how we got to representation, Lisa. So you're, you're reminding me of that. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And there's other, there's other examples of that too, right? When we think about geography and we think about, you know, the Middle East, well, what is it Middle East from, right? There's a, there's an assumed center, right? When we think about that, so you, any region of the globe that is referred to in some kind of directional way, it's, directional from Europe, right? Or the United States. Like it's so it's directional from whiteness, really. Um, and I think that that's the same, yeah, the same kind of concept with diversity. So for me thinking about diversity that way that it's centered whiteness, I hadn't thought about that before, but it makes absolute sense to me because of that, you know, what Shauna had articulated around it being, well, who are you diverse from? And I think that we can apply that same concept to a, a lot of different places. Um, You know, I even think about the United States and how it's kind of marketed as this melting pot, right? But, the, you know, like assimilation, right? So you all come here and look at all these people of all different colors and all different backgrounds, right? And it's this wonderful melting pot, but it's really not a melting pot of, you know, ability and color and um, gender. It's basically a melting pot that is pushing everyone to be white and straight and able-bodied and cisgendered, right? So it's it's a bit misleading. Um, well, it's not. It's more than a bit misleading. It's very misleading. Uh, and so I think that, e- you know, even the way that we talk about the United States and um, the word diverse and how that's used, you know, the United States is very diverse, right? It's just, it just feels um, disingenuous. It feels surfacy, whereas representation is... Look at your community. Who's in your community, and are those people represented in leadership positions in organizations? Um, you know, in teaching, in medical field, and in large part, you'll find that it's not right that people are not represented there. And so, I think that it's just a better way to think about this.
1: I, I uh, honestly, I can talk to you both for hours, especially that we have you with us, which is exciting. Um, I, but I think that this was a really good note to probably close out on.
0: So let's do this um, since we are running short on time. I would like for you both to, to obviously give closing remarks and just what would you say to people that are doing this work that may be feeling discouraged or run down um, to, to maybe inspire and motivate them or to let them know that things are happening like shaking is going on, and what would you share with those people? So basically I'm asking for myself, um, but I know we have other people listening, so I'm sure they're gonna be able to take away something as well. So what would be your your closing remarks on um, those for those people who are doing this work?
2: What should we say, Lisa? Keep hope alive and, and that's it? <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm not
3: sure, can I be inspirational? <laughs> Uh, at this time on a Wednesday night,
2: <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, we can be hopeful pragmatists. I That's mean, true. we can we can be pragmatic in in it. That um, Lisa and I have talked about before how. Um, you know the the turnover in professional full time mm-hmm. DEI work is very short. You know maybe three to five years if you're lucky, right, um, Lisa? I'm not going to tell your business, but I'm 25 years into it, and and I'm sure you've got plenty of years under your belt as well. Which means we we've lived what how many how many lives in DEI work? That, that's at least four or five lives right there, and I know Lisa has hers as well. Um, and so with that, you know I think what's really important is. Um, to if you cannot if you cannot find the compassion to do the work then find the proximity to do the work and I think what happens sometimes is that, and and Lisa, it reminds me of kind of the work that you do where, you know, men may not be as conscious or aware of violence against women until they have daughters, until they have sisters, until they have auntie or whoever. Um, and so sometimes people aren't quite born with the superpower of DEI, but they acquire it because they are close or in proximity to people who are now directly affected, right? And with that, you know, for me, yeah, that, plenty of days that I get tired, of course, absolutely. But, you know, Daryl, when I look at some of your work and some of the things that you want to do as far as your research with Black men, et cetera, oh, well, I guess I'm going to have to get my hind parts on this call to talk with Daryl because his research may directly affect my 10-year-old and my six-year-old, period. So I'm going to make time for that. Um, and so I think some people do need that level of proximity to um, c- continue to keep hope alive. But I also strongly encourage people with my Pragmatic hope in that you're probably not doing it right if you're not running into some type of resistance. And so be ready for it. I mean, you know, if you are on the defensive line of a football team, you don't show up thinking, oh, this is going to be a breeze. Let me just run on down the field. No, I mean, you know clearly that that's what you're there for. Right. And so, um, just to continue to be prepared for the resistance. Um, And it it usually gives me a sign that I'm going in the right direction when I'm in headwind rather rather than tailwind on certain things. And that's okay. And to hold both of those into balance that there are people that are dependent on us to do this work flat out, like, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. I don't wanna look back and be like, shoot, we're right back where we were when I first started my career, what in the world were we doing? Um, And so I think holding all that hope of, what what's going to be Lisa we said we're going to do a whole podcast Mm -hmm, on this topic mm -hmm. what's going to be the DEI legacy what what are we going to leave for anybody it might be our kids it might be our spouses it might be whoever but what are we going to leave and I think if we leave without a legacy that is probably a bigger problem Mm -hmm. um so I I think we should hold all that at the same time Mm -hmm.
3: yeah um everything she said. Uh, and then you know I have I have a very dear friend who once said to me around social justice work DEI work that each of us gets to lay a stone in a path, right? And there are stones that have been laid before us and there are stones that will be laid after us. And so it's really important to know that even if you don't move a mountain, <laughs> Right? You're laying a stone and you are making a dent in some way, whether that's in someone's life or whether that's at an organization or a policy, you know, you're you're doing the work and that's what's important. And then I would also say have those people that you can drop the F-bombs with, right? You know, like I text Shauna frequently. I had a really fascinating conversation with my dad and I like copy and pasted it and sent it to her. I was like, what the heck? I said something worse than that, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, and I think that's really important. I mean, um, just be, because those, if you don't let it out, if you don't let that frustration out, that impatience that just builds up and builds up, right. And you want to pull your hair out and you, then it's just, you're going to, your bucket is going to fill up really quickly and then it's going to overflow and you're not going to be able to manage that. And that's when you stop being effective. Um, you know, and I think, sometimes I'm definitely not effective. Like I don't really love resistance and it annoys me, but I know that we run into it. Right. So if I'm not feeling like I can engage in it, um, I'll lean on someone else or, or, you know, and then I'll take one for them at another time. I think there's that piece that's really important.
1: Oh, that was good. So good. If you want more of that, that inspiration and that wisdom we are dropping the link to their podcast unfazed in our show notes please click on it please listen to it it is amazing and every week it inspires me and i learn something every single time i listen um i would say at this point i think we're done yeah this was really good this was i don't even want to end it but i know we have to all
0: right well until the next time we're
1: out peace bye thanks for joining us for this episode of success in black and white the podcast the podcast music okay. engineered and produced by DJ Vance
0: remember that you can join our email list at successinblackandwhite.com for more ways on how you can help bridge the gap between racial boundaries I'm April and I'm Daryl we're, we're out, out.